Good morning, church family. Great to see you guys today. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. One thing I want to make you aware of, at the end of the sermon, we're going to partake in communion together as a church family. And so if you need to run off and grab some bread, um, get a cup and be ready for communion, that would be great. Um, looking forward to doing that. You know, one of the powerful things about communion is it's the gathered body of Christ connecting and uniting together, finding our common faith in Jesus, our Savior, who gave his life for us. And so it's a powerful way that we can be connected in heart, if not in person. And so be ready for that at the end of the message. All right, well, here we go. We're going to get started. If you're following along in your Bible, our main passage this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be looking at the story that takes place in verses 14 through 23. And so let's take a moment, let's pray and prepare our hearts to receive what God has for us today. All right, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. God, we thank you for your desire to know us and for us to know you. And God, for us to live a life that's connected with you. Lord, we thank you for the example of David, a man who you called a man after your own heart. God, my prayer is that that same thing would be true of us. Jesus, that we would find this life that we have in you, this abundant life that's available in you. Lord, that it is, it is something that can be cultivated and enjoyed. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come in this moment, that you would illuminate the scripture to our heart, that you'd give us clear direction, oh God, and how we can respond to you our God who loves us, and we can respond back in worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let me recap this story briefly for you. So this is before Saul, King Saul, has ever met David. And King Saul has been leading for a while now, and he's had some ups and downs, a lot of downs, quite frankly, along the way. And so he's now reached a place in his life where this job that he has, it's difficult, it's demanding, and he's in personal turmoil. He's dealt with a lot of fear and anxiety, and so now he's in a place of torment. His spirit is tormented. And so his servants come to him and say, King Saul, we have an idea. We believe worship, music can be really powerful right now, and it can help calm you and set you at rest, at ease. And so he said, okay, go find me somebody that can play and help calm my spirit. And so one of his servants raises his hand and says, there's this young boy in Bethlehem named David, and he's highly thought of and respected, and he's great at playing the instrument, and he has a heart for God. And Saul says, all right, go call the shepherd boy and bring him here. And so David comes and stays in Saul's household. And every time Saul found himself in a moment of torment and despair, David would be brought in to play a song, to play worship, and to help calm his spirit. And each time it would help kind of Saul to calm down, to wind down. Now what I want to do this morning, um, we're going to really kind of separate this into two parts. I want to spend a few minutes comparing the difference between Saul and David and how they approached worship. And then kind of in the second half of the message this morning, I want to look at two things we can learn from David and his heart and his approach to worshiping God. All right. So let's start by looking at these two guys. First of all, King Saul, 
When we first get introduced to him in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it, it begins to describe him and it says, And he, his father, had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. In fact, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul stood out. He had the look, he had the demeanor of someone who was kingly, who would be literally looked up to. Um, and the people did that. And so we move forward into chapter 10 now of 1 Samuel. And when Samuel's introducing him to the people, he says, check this guy out. Look at him. This is the guy that God has set aside to be your king. And he's, he stands out. And so we pick this up, 1 Samuel 10, 24. This is kind of at Saul's coronation. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. See, everything about Saul outwardly, um, he, he looked, he appeared to be a guy that had it all together. He was accepted, he was admired, and he was established as the king, and the people rejoiced. However, that was only an external view of Saul. The reality of King Saul, what was actually transpiring in his heart and life is this. Saul was a guy who was fearful, anxious. He was overwhelmed. And in fact, he even got caught up in petty jealousies that began to consume his life. I want to give you some examples of this. A few of these verses you can, you can go back and read later. Um, first of all, at his coronation that we just read. Well, before he stands up in front of all the people and gets celebrated, just a couple verses earlier, we see that he's hiding in fact, he's hiding amongst the baggage. All the people had, had gathered and brought all this gear and came to this place. And he's hiding in amongst the donkeys and the luggage because he's terrified. We move forward a little bit further. And as his kingdom is getting established, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 52, that there was this atmosphere of constant conflict and war with the Philistines. And so the way Saul addressed the obstacles that he was facing, the enemies that he had. He faced them not with a reliance on the Lord or a sense of confidence in who God had called him to be, but instead, check this out. This is 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And so see, the way Saul found strength was in others. He didn't feel this sense of strength. He didn't view God as his source of strength. He, he found other people and attached them to himself to try to get a sense of confidence and security. We move on a little bit further and we see one of Saul's biggest downfalls was because of this anxiety, this insecurity. There's an entire story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where he was told to deal with an enemy in a very specific way. And he, he refused that way. And in fact, he succumbed to the desire of his people. And when Samuel confronts him and says, why have you done this? Why did you reject what the Lord said? Saul just says very plainly in 1 Samuel 15, 24, I feared the people. And so I obeyed them rather than the commandment of God. And so ultimately, we see this mentality that Saul battled with 
We see it develop in his heart, even towards the closest people in his life. After David's been brought into his house, um, plays the music to comfort him, they develop a friendship. Saul begins to admire and respect him. We come to the story, the classic story of David and Goliath, and Goliath gets defeated by David, and the Philistines are routed. And so all the people now are celebrating this victory. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, as they're returning from this victory, um, all the people are celebrating, and the women begin to sing this song. This is 1 Samuel 18, verse 7 now. And the women sang one to another as they celebrated. Saul struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Verse 8. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? He, he couldn't even celebrate the victories of both David and himself. All he heard was how he didn't measure up, and somebody else seemed more important, seemed to have it all together. And then verse 9 really sums it all up. It says, And Saul eyed David from that day on. The reality of the picture that the scripture paints of Saul is of this guy who's, who's in turmoil. He's overwhelmed by the job that he holds, and he's wrapped up in how other people view him, in his own fear, his own anxiety, and all of this leads to distress in his soul. And now young David begins to enter the scene, and he has a completely different demeanor. This is a, a young guy, the youngest of, of a bunch of other brothers, and he's kind of tends to be the forgotten one that's out tending the sheep. And yet, the reality of who David was got out. The reality of his inner person, it became known. And so back to our main passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 16, when, when Saul tells his servants, okay, find someone that is skilled in music that can come play and calm me. Someone speaks up and says, I know about a guy. And I want you to listen to how he describes David. This is 1 Samuel 16, verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who's with the sheep. And what we see from this passage is that David had several good qualities. But the ultimate defining quality that stood out about him is that he was with the Lord. He was familiar with God and His presence. And in fact, his, his valor, these other things that he did, they flowed out of this connection that he had with God. The book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul's teaching at one point, and he's talking about Saul and David, and he says, hey, this is what God's view was of David. This is in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And so here we have these two characters, Saul, who's highly thought of, highly respected. He looks put together on the outside. He has every opportunity to lead a successful life. But internally, 
He's, he's anxious. He's overwhelmed with this job that bears heavy burdens with it. He's consumed with thoughts of himself and how other people view himself. And it's, it's ripping him off. It's, it's, it's completely consuming his thoughts. And then we have David. David, who, as, as we'll see, you know, you read through all of 1 Samuel, we see all kinds of ups and downs in this man's life. Um, he faced plenty of difficulties and obstacles like Saul did. And he was often in despair in the midst of those. But the thing that stood apart about him is that he was anchored. He was rooted in who God is. His heart was after God. He had a heart to worship him and to be in his presence. And so, so the reality is in comparing these two, um, what, what can we learn? How did they approach God? How did they approach dealing with some of the biggest obstacles they faced in their life? I want to start by, by looking at the final verse of this passage in 1 Samuel 16. Here's Saul in turmoil in his spirit. Here's young David that's now come into his house. And it says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Listen, the biggest difference between Saul and David is this. Saul looked to music. Saul looked to worship as a coping mechanism. When he faced trouble and difficulty, he brought in someone else to play worship, to sing, and that person's worship helped calm his own spirit. Worship was a coping mechanism. But for David, worship was a way of life. It was something that anchored his very soul. Listen, I, I just have to tell you, um, friends, in, in all graciousness and gentleness, I just have to tell you to beware. This story might sound strange. Saul's tormented in spirit. David plays. It calms him. What am I supposed to get out of that? Listen, Saul's approach to God and specifically his approach to worship is a great danger that we face in our American churches. Many of us have, have substituted real daily worship, a life of worship. Instead, we've replaced that with a therapy session once a week where we can get up and we can go to church and, and someone else has prepared um, songs to sing, has spent time reflecting on who God is and, and they lead worship and we come in and we draw from what they are giving in order to get just a moment of calm, a, a moment uh, to cope and to get peace and to go, <sighs> but then if we're not careful, we go back to our everyday lives that are filled with feelings of anxiety and being overwhelmed and not measuring up and, and getting wrapped up in the worry and the cares of life. And we miss the beautiful opportunity that's in front of us to be people who live lives of worship. Now, now listen, I want to be careful here. I, I don't intend to, to bash or neglect um, or put down corporate worship. I'm not even saying it isn't meant to be meaningful, that it does restore our hearts, that it does bring comfort. 
There, there absolutely is value in the people of God coming together and singing truth, reminding each other of truth. What I'm saying is be careful that that isn't our only moment of worship in our lives. We were made to live a life of worship. We were made to be connected with God. And so really what should happen is that we're living a life of worship. And then when we come and gather corporately as a church, we're singing out together truths that flow out of our heart. And so my, my hope this morning is that we could see this contrast between Saul and David and just have some honest reflection. Lord, is, is this me? Have I ever fallen into a place, or currently right now have I fallen into a place, God, where I'm a little bit more like Saul, where worship has just become these little moments in time that are more like a coping mechanism instead, God, of having a life that's anchored and rooted in you, where worship flows out of me. It's, it's a byproduct of a life of worship. Now, whether that's you or not, whether you feel closer to the heart of David and worship anchors you, that's, that's great. I want to share some encouraging thoughts on how we continue to cultivate that. But if you do relate a little bit more to Saul, I want to encourage you. There's something we can do about that. All right? So we're going to focus now on two key ways that we can cultivate a life of worship. All right? Number one, the first way that we cultivate a life of worship is through meditation. Now, I'm not talking about some vague, strange thing where, you know, we just try to quiet ourselves and tap into something inside of our hearts or, or in the universe. I'm talking about something very personal and very specific, the kind of meditation that the Scripture invites us to. That is meditation that is based on a reflection of who God is, and what His Word has to say to me about who He is. Meditating on Him and His Word. Um, I would propose to you that, that solitude, contemplation, meditation, these are ways that we can tend our heart. We should be watching what we feed our heart because our heart needs to be cared for and tended. There's this mentality in our culture that we have to be careful of where Instead of viewing our heart as something to be tended and cared for and watch what we put into it, we do the opposite. We think that the way we figure out what we need to do in life is by asking our heart what it wants. We look to our heart for direction. Man, that is, that's dangerous and it's not biblical. We look to God for purpose and for direction. We let Him saturate our hearts with His truth with His love, with who we are in Him. And then, then out of that, our hearts can give us a better sense of direction and guidance. Let's not put the cart before the horse. Our hearts need to be cared for and tended. Check this out. This is the wisdom of Solomon, who, make no mistake, it's not an accident that he is the son of King David. And he has this to, sh to share about the importance of tending our hearts. This is from Proverbs chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 20 through 23, but I want you to pay special attention to the last verse. He says, my son, think about this. He's talking to someone he cares about deeply. He says, my son, be attentive to my words 
Incline your ears to what I'm saying. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. He says, listen, I'm about to tell you something really important. Don't miss this. Catch it. And he says, these words, they are life to those who find them and they are healing for all their flesh. Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance or other passages say diligence. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. The actual flow of our life, the most important thing about us, it flows out of the condition of our heart. And so he says, tend it. Think about what you meditate on. Think about the words that you take in because what you do with your heart sets the tone for everything. Well, man, I wonder where Solomon learned that. Probably from his father, David. David had a lot to say about tending our heart and meditating on God's word. I want to read a couple of them to you from the Psalms, but I want to encourage you. There's about seven or eight verses in my notes that you can go back to and look through these different Psalms where David talks about the importance of meditating on God, the reality of who he is and what his word has to say. Let's read a couple of them together. Psalm 119 verses 15 and 16. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. He purposes to meditate, to take in God's word and to hold it in, to remember it and not forget it. Psalm 145 verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So he, he breaks out. He doesn't just reflect on the written word of God. He steps back and gets a big picture view. God, look at your glory. Look at your splendor. Look at some of the works I've seen you do. Maybe in the world around me. Maybe I reflect on the beauty of your creation and what you've made. Maybe I slow down and remember specific works that you've done in my life, God, that are glorious and wonderful. Ways you've, you've rescued me. You've helped me. You've been there for me. He reflects on who God is. And then ultimately, David takes this attitude of saying, God, God, would you take my heart? Would you tend my heart? As I'm reflecting on your word, as I'm reflecting on the reality of who you are, God, would you change me? He captures the essence of this in Psalm 51, verse 10. As he's grappling with a, with a very specific failure in his life, he says, God, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Listen, if we will set aside time to meditate on God, to present our hearts to Him. David, we, we never see David neglect what he's going through. He's very honest about the reality of what he faces in life, the difficulties, the struggles. But that isn't his fuel. He honestly communicates to God, here's my struggle Here's how I'm feeling. But God, this is who you are. This is the truth of who you are. This is the truth of what you do. And so, Lord, would you protect my heart? Would you clean my heart? Would you renew it, Lord, so that I would, I would be, my, my life would be permeated by your truth and your reality? Um, I'm really grateful. You know, I, I love the timing of how things fall. And during the course of the week, I've been praying and studying for this message and 
a good friend of mine, Pastor Ian Gilchrist, um, sent a text out to me and a couple friends this week, and it was it was a quote. Um, it was a larger article that Dallas Willard wrote years ago, and I just was struck at God's timing of how this quote captured what we're talking about here this morning. I want you to to hear these words from Dallas Willard. He says, "The inner dimensions of life are what are referred to in the great commandment: love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength." with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to how he talks about this commandment. He says, This commandment does not so much tell us what we must do as much as what we must cultivate in the care of our souls. it's, It's a purpose, it's a leaning in our heart that we cultivate that then produces something. As the living word and the written word occupy our minds, we naturally and supernaturally come to love God more and more because we see clearly and constantly how lovely He is. In this way, we enter a life and not just times of worship. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying what the psalmist said. When I meditate, when I reflect on God, when I cultivate an attitude in my heart, of worship, of love for Him by taking in His truth, it cultivates in me a life of worship instead of just settling for moments of time where I worship. David summarized this best in Psalm 63 where he makes this connection between what I meditate on and then it becoming an expression of worship. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. See, I I feast on your truth, and and then it produces a mouth that sings praise. When I remember you upon my bed, when I meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David connects meditating on who God is with expressions of worship. All right, And that leads to our second point this morning. The way we cultivate a life of worship, it starts with meditation, but then it has to get out. And so the second thing we do to to live a life of worship is we learn to express our heart. We begin by tending our heart, then we express our heart. Listen, the Psalms are full of life and expressions of worship. In fact, just one example, in the Psalms over 70 times, it tells us to sing. It tells us to sing. It's it's this vital form of worship. It's an outward expression of inward love and gratitude. Listen, I I want you to, to think about this seriously for a minute. When we have love for someone, if we just sit back and assume that it's understood, that I have these warm feelings in my heart and that it's understood and it's known by the object of my love, I'm missing the boat completely. Yes, it's right and good for for me to understand deep in my soul the love I have for someone. But love is meant to be expressed. And that's what worship is. It is outwardly declaring. It's expressing what is in our heart. Listen, I'm actually kind of glad that we're talking about this when we're not in a room together where we've sung 30 or 40 minutes of worship songs together. Because what I want to say to you right here, this isn't about getting us to perform a certain way 
at church. It's not about that at all. My hope is that we would become convinced of the fact that I need to express myself in worship. I get that some of us are a little quieter than others, a little more reserved. Maybe we're a little more stoic in our worship. But I would, I would just submit to you, whether you do it loudly, boldly, hands up, dancing, or whether you do it in a little bit more of a reserved manner, worship has to be expressed. We've got to let our hearts out. We've got to open our mouths and sing. I want you to hear a few of these places in the book of Psalms where singing is described. Very simply, uh, David writes in Psalm 47, verses 6 and 7, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. By the way, those who have exclamation points all throughout. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a, a psalm. In just two verses, he says the word sing over and over and over again with these exclamation points. We've got to sing. We've got to express it. Now listen, if you just think this is based on a false sense of joy, like, like I'm going to sing because everything is good, and then somehow when things aren't good, I'm supposed to fake it and just pretend that everything in my heart is wonderful and sing with joy. No, absolutely not. David is often being honest about the fact that life is hard and difficult, and he expresses that reality, and then he reminds himself of the truth, the larger truth, the greater truth of who God is, and it settles his soul so that he can sing in any season. Here's an example of that, Psalm 59, verse 16. But I will sing of your strength, and I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. David doesn't act like he hasn't had seasons of distress. He just remembers who is his anchor in times of distress. Listen, church family, my hope and my prayer this morning is that we can learn something from the examples of Saul and David. That, that we wouldn't live lives that are just wrapped up in the busyness of the day, in the anxieties and worries of the season that we live in, but that instead we would choose to be like David, that we would cultivate lives, cultivate hearts of worship, that we live a life of worship that's rooted, that's rooted in meditating on the truth of who God is, and that we then choose to give expression outward. Um, as we wrap this up this morning, I, I really want to encourage you guys. Uh, I touched on this briefly Friday, talking about um, hearing God's voice and responding to Him. But I'm just convinced that, that one of the silver linings, one of the benefits that we can find in this season we're in right now, is to take advantage of the fact that we are socially isolated. And I want to encourage you during this time, purpose in your heart to make time to meditate on God's Word, to meditate on the truth of who He is and what He's done. Look for examples of blessing in your life, even right here, right now, today. And then church, I want to challenge you to maybe stretch yourself a little bit. We're not gathered in corporate worship. We aren't singing loud together in person. So use this time to do that in your home. Sing in the shower. Lock yourself in your prayer closet. Sing with your children. Choose to express your heart and worship to God. Sing out. 
And watch what happens as more and more we become people who live a life of worship. Amen? Man, I believe God has something wonderful and sweet for us in this season if we'll purpose in our hearts to meditate on Him and to express our hearts in worship. All right, so to to wrap things up together, I, I want us to take communion together. And man, that's what communion is all about, what we've been talking about this morning where we're, we're told to remember Jesus as often as we do this. We're meditating on who He is, on what He's done for us. We're meditating on His great sacrifice. And then as we take communion, the bread and the cup, man, then we stop and we, we, we express to Him a heart of thankfulness, of gratitude, of worship. And so let's do that together for just a couple moments, all right? So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. They had taken the Passover meal together. And now in in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verse 26, the scripture says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, he gave them the example of, of blessing, praying over, remembering what God had given them. He blessed the bread and it says that he broke it and he gave it to the disciples And then he said to them, take and eat for this is my body. I want to encourage you, go ahead and do that. Take some bread, break it, bless God, thank him for it. Let's do that together right now. Jesus, thank you for your body that you gave for us, for your body that was broken for us. God, that you did it willingly. In fact, joyfully even, not because you enjoyed the process, but you did it because of the joy that was set before you. God, that your brokenness would lead to our wholeness. God, that you heal us, spirit, soul, and body, that you bring us into your family. Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for us. Then likewise, in the same passage, verse 27, says that he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so let's take the cup. Let's remember Jesus shed blood for us that he gave purposely, intentionally, so we could be cleansed, so that we could be forgiven. His blood was spilled, his life was given so that we who were dead could have life. And so let's remember that and thank him for it. And listen, if you need to, pause for just a moment and get right with him. If, if there's sin, undealt with sin in your life, you need to confess and acknowledge it and repent. Do that right now. We've got this moment. We've got this time. And so, Jesus, we come before you right now. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us. We thank you that you tell us in your word that it is your shed blood that deals with our sin, that it cleanses us and washes us. Lord, we can't even begin to verbalize how thankful we are for that. Lord, we could never earn it. We could never deserve it. But Jesus, we thank you that you don't require that from us. You gave it freely. And so, Lord, we now receive from you the forgiveness and the new life that you offer. Jesus, we take it in. Lord, we confess our sin. And we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so now, Jesus, we remember your body broken. We remember your blood shed and we just stop in gratitude and say, thank you. You are the Lamb of God. 
You were slain for the sins of the whole world. And now we worship you and we glorify you forever. Jesus, we pause in the midst of remembering your sacrifice to also remember your resurrected life. And that because you rose again from the grave, that we are promised eternal life. Now, by abiding in you and being with you all the days of our life here on this earth, and God, into the future forever, into all eternity with you. Jesus, we love you, we glorify you, and we worship you together this morning. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, church family, thank you for joining us this morning, for worshiping together. I just want to remind you we're available to pray with you guys. If you'd like someone to spend some time with you, again, send us a direct message on Facebook. We're available till 11 o'clock this morning to, to sit and pray with people. We'd love to give you a call on the phone. Again, if you're watching this later after the fact, you can submit a prayer request online. All right. And then church family, as we move into the week ahead, we've got life groups that are meeting um, through video chat. I know it's not ideal, but man, I heard great reports from people that just said it was so good to sit, to see my friends' faces. We could commiserate together a little bit. Uh, We could get some stuff off of our chest, um, you know, whine and complain a little bit. But ultimately, we could circle back around and remind each other of truth. We can love on one another. We can pray for each other. And we can keep hanging on through this hard season that we're in. Jump into a life group if you're not in them. They're open. They're ready for you. Church family, we love you. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.